Uh, thank you, Brian and Praise Team, for leading us this morning. And um, I hope you're enjoying uh, this, this weekend. It's kind of the unofficial end of summer, isn't it? We kind of kick things off with Memorial Day weekend, and we flow into Labor Day weekend, and then kind of things get back to, to normal. I know school's already started, although here in Norman, we get a five-day weekend already for the kids. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a fun time. It's a good time. Labor Day is that day in our nation where we celebrate the laborer, the, the worker, by giving them a day, an extra day of rest, an extra day of recreation, and uh, that's a good thing. And uh, so I hope that uh, as someone who works, as studies, who, who applies themselves daily in whatever it is that, that your hands find to do, that, uh, that you would honor God in that and in that process. Uh, as many of you are aware, you've been praying for our staff. We were away for a few days this last week on our staff retreat. In fact, one of the questions that, that we talked about and we shared about was about your first job. Do you remember the first thing that you actually got paid to do? Now, I'm not talking about an allowance at home or, or something that you did for your grandparents or even your parents, but I'm talking about a real job where you went somewhere, you showed up, and you did something, and you got a paycheck. Remember that first job? Remember the, the harvest and the feeling of that when you got that? Wow, this is mine. I earned it. Well, my first job was in the fifth grade. Any fifth graders here? We got any fifth graders? Yeah, my first job that I got paid was in the fifth grade. My neighbor across the street worked at the high school. He was a high school student and worked in the, the drama and theater uh, productions there. And they had a, I think it was like a Miss Teen pageant that was coming in and they needed some backstage help. And so he came over and he asked his neighbor if he'd be willing to help. I said, a job, a real job. And, and I got permission to go and to do that. It was over the weekend. And um, so we prepared, we'd practice. I was the curtain raiser. And that was before the days where you had a button that would do that automatically. You had to kind of do it, you know, work hard. And so, man, I was, oh, I'd practice, written it, and I'd practice closing it. And I was ready to go for the big night. And so all the, the girls, I think, had gotten on stage, and the stars, the MCs were still backstage trying to get things ready, and there was a lot of commotion. And all I heard was something like curtain, or it wasn't open curtain, but I thought I heard open curtain. And so I start opening the curtain. And the audience thinks that the curtain's being opened at the right time, and they're clapping and, and celebrating. The, the spotlight guy was paying attention, so the spotlight starts moving, and all I could hear in the backstage was, who opened the curtain? <laughs> We're not ready. But anyway, I got, I got paid, so I didn't get docked. I thought that was pretty good. I think it was like $50 for the weekend, and I, I thought I was like, wow, man, I'm a rich guy. So we celebrate work over Labor Day, and... Uh, Part of our Christian tradition in celebrating work and celebrating the things that God gives us to do to, to nurture and cultivate each other in our, uh, the world that we live in is the Sabbath. Sabbath is a day of rest. It's a, a day of recreation uh, in what that would mean. And certainly worship is a part of that. So, so it's great for us. It's wonderful for us, wonderful for us to assemble on Sundays, to rest, to worship, and to celebrate what God gives us to do and to celebrate that he is our sustenance even in the midst of our work. So as we work our way through uh, the book of Ephesians, we're in chapter 2. And I think it's fitting that on this Labor Day that we talk about the gift of God's grace and of God's salvation. 
Now again, we, in, in Scripture, there's a heavy emphasis on, on work. From the Garden of Eden, we discover that in addition to fellowship with God, that God has created us to nurture and to cultivate the, the garden, the earth that we live in. So, so in a sense, we're created for fellowship. We're created to work and to labor in the garden and to, uh, to nurture that and cultivate that and develop that and, and co-create along with God with the stuff that he created. So work is an important part of who we are. Work is an important part of our culture, our, our Western heritage and culture that we live in. We, we talk about the, the Protestant work ethic that informed by our faith, the desire to work hard. And, and in our culture, we, we value work and we reward work through the harvest of, of the paycheck and of the things that we're able to create and to enjoy the benefits from. So I find it very interesting that with this great emphasis of work in Scripture, that when it comes to salvation, that God hasn't set out a path of work for us to accomplish. God has not set out this task. Now, if you want to be saved, if you want to have an eternity with me in heaven, here is the protocol. Here's the work that you need to do. You need, you know, you need to go to school and study hard and, and go to college and get trained and educated and then focus and become an expert in something and then, then go to work and develop and create and nurture and, and cultivate and, and then you'll be saved. And when you get to this bar, then you, you can be saved. Now we're all going to work towards this, right? Isn't it interesting that when we get to the topic of salvation, that God says you can't earn it. You, you can't work to become and to be saved. Now, there's, there's work that's to be done after creation, right, from the garden. There's work that we do after we, we experience God's gift of salvation, but there's not work that we do to accomplish salvation. Yet, if you look at the religions of the world, the religions of the world talk about the kinds of work that we have to do to find ourselves in favor with God. And there, there are even those branches and even those, those places in Christianity that sometimes lose sight of the fact that salvation is a gift of grace and they begin to talk about the things that you have to do in order to be saved, in order to come into right relationship with God. And so on this Labor Day weekend, as, as we focus on resting and recreating from work, it's appropriate that we understand that salvation is a gift. That God has done the work of salvation. And that we are simply to, by faith, to receive. And to live out of that gift of grace and of salvation. And that's what we're going to talk about in Ephesians 2. So if you haven't opened up your Bible there yet, take your Bible. Open to Ephesians 2. These first verses of, of this chapter are some of the key verses in Pauline theology, in the theology of Paul, who wrote the letters here in the latter part of the Old Testament, that talks about salvation. And so this morning, as we look at the mysteries of Ephesians, we look specifically at the mystery of salvation. Paul begins in, in chapter 2. Now remember last week, we talked about the mystery of, of predestination. And that predestination is, is founded in Christ. We are saved through Christ. Our inheritance, our salvation is found in 
Jesus Christ. And so after sharing that, that, that salvation, that eternity, that, that our inheritance of the Spirit of God is all founded in Christ Jesus, Paul kind of backtracks a little bit. And he begins in verse 1 here in chapter 2. And you, talking to the church, he's reminding the church, the people that are in Christ Jesus, that at one point, and you were dead. You were dead. Well, nobody wants to hear that. The truth is, is we don't like the language of death, do we? I know in, in my family, in, in my, on my mom's side, my, my maternal grandfather's side, as he was getting older, that was taboo. We, we didn't talk about death. Mom, has grandpa said anything about, you know, arrangements, funeral, what, what's going to happen? No, we don't talk about that in our family. Grandpa didn't want to talk about that. So we don't talk about it. The language of death is taboo for many of us because it makes us uncomfortable. It reminds us of our mortality. When we speak of death, we, we're reminded that we're going to die one day. As we talk about the language of death, it reminds us that death separates. Death is the ultimate equalizer in our lives. Each one of us are, are going to die. From the smartest to the least smart, from the, the wealthiest to the least wealthy, from the healthiest person to the sickest person, we're all going to die. Death is the great equalizer. When we speak of death, though, it gets your attention. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in verse 1. He says, you were dead. You were dead. You walked around but you were dead. You, you, your bodies had life in them, but the reality is, is that you were dead. And, and he continues on here. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. He's talking about dead people walking. Some of you may remember the movie that was several years ago, Dead, dead Man Walking. It's a story of, of a, 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 a brutal murder and of a, 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 a Catholic nun that came alongside and, and just her, her place was and position was, I want this person, no matter how much sin, no matter how horrible and wicked the, the act was, I want them to know that God still loves them. And she walked with this man. But this idea of dead men walking comes out of the, the, the prison system. It comes out of the, I think it's tradition in the 1960s and even below as a, as a, a person who was on death row took that walk from their cell to the execution chamber. The guards would call out, dead man walking, dead man walking here. Dead man walking, dead man walking here as they would walk to their place of ex execution. If you remember in the movie The Green Mile, there's a similar scene in which that, that same phrase is used over and over again, dead man walking. Well, in a lot of sense, that's what Paul's saying, is that when we are in our sin, when we are in our trespasses, in our, our sins, then we are dead men, we are dead women walking. There's, there's a spiritual death, there's a relational death that has taken place in our lives. Now, isn't it interesting that in our culture today, a culture that I'm not very familiar with, maybe our younger folks are, we, they talk a lot about zombies, right? What's a zombie? What's a dead person walking, right? <laughs> I don't think that's the picture that Paul wants us to have. It, it's like if you, if you saw the movie, the, 
I don't think so. If you saw the movie The Sixth, the Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis in it, his character was, was dead, but, sorry, there's a spoiler alert for like a 20-year-old movie. <laughs> so, but, but his character was, was dead, right? But the character didn't know it. I think that's this picture that, that Paul's helping us to understand. We are, are dead people that are walking, and, and he says, you were dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you used to walk. Now, Paul has given us here, I think, three word pictures to describe sin, to describe death, to describe how we walked in our, as, as dead men and as dead women. The first is this idea of trespasses. Now, now, literally, this word trespasses means to, to fall aside, to be walking along a path and, and to fall aside. But I think our common usage also gives us under, better understanding of what the word trespasses mean. The word trespass simply means to be or to go where you don't belong. You, you trespass on somebody's property. You, well, you don't belong there. You're, you're on their land, and, and you're not supposed to be there. In fact, it's a crime in our, in our culture, in our world, to trespass and to be somewhere that is somebody else's. And I think spiritually, it's this idea of, of trespasses. It gives us an understanding of what does, what does sin mean? Well, it means to trespass. It means to say, you know what? There's some places that I know that I probably shouldn't go and some places I probably shouldn't be. And when we trespass, we make the decision to go there and to be there and to be present there to trespass in a sense so trespass is this word for, for sin, is, is this word picture that Paul's helping us to understand. But again, you weren't just dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your sins. This is that, that word uh, that reflects or that, that describes sin as missing the mark. In other words, we're to live our life in a way, we're to, to walk down um, this, this path of our, of our decisions of honoring and you know, obeying God. And the truth is, is when we shoot for that target and we try to live our lives in a way that reflects, reflects God's desire, the truth is we miss sometimes. We don't, we don't follow through exactly the way we're supposed to. And so to walk in sin means to walk in a way that, that we're always missing the mark. We're always missing the target. Do you ever wake up or do you ever have that experience where you say, wow, I just, I just missed the mark. I, I, I missed the mark in, in, in my presentation. I missed the mark in, in the test. I missed the mark in a lot of different ways. And this is a word picture that helps us to understand what sin is. But then Paul continues on and he brings up the word disobedience. Where the word trespass means to go and to be where you're not supposed to be. The word disobedience simply means to, to do what you know you're not supposed to do. To, to disobey God's desire, to disobey His, His will, His direction in your life. And in a lot of ways, it's missing the mark. When we disobey God, we do what we know we're not supposed to, to do. Jesus goes on to say that if you love me, if you love the Father, then you'll obey me. To love God is expressed through our obedience. There's the, a healthy relationship there. So conversely, when we disobey God, there's a death in that relationship. There's a death in that connectionship between us and between God when we disobey God. So the implications of what Paul is trying to teach us in verse 1 is that you were dead. You were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses. You were, you were dead in your disobedience. 
And the implication is also that those around you who are not in Christ Jesus are also dead. And that, that becomes offensive. When we, when we share that in, with the world is that we are all dead before God because of our trespasses and our sin and our disobedience to Him. So Paul continues on this theme and he describes what it looks like for dead people to be walking in this world. And it's really, a, I think, an accurate description, maybe a description that would cause us to, to look at our own lives, to look at our own culture and our own community that we live in. Verses 2 and 3. When dead people are walking, this is what it looks like. They're about gratifying their lusts. They're about indulging their desires. When dead people walk, it's very, very selfish. It's, it's about me. It's about, it's about working for me. It's about living for me. It's about disregarding others. It's about using others as a stepping stone to get where you would like. It's about manipulating and controlling and taking advantage of others. Why? So that we can gratify our own lusts and our own desires. Paul goes on to say that, that dead people walking are children of wrath. Now certainly I think this speaks to us being in our, in our sinful nature and the, the consequences of that, the wages of sin, the results of sin is death in our lives and, and separation from God. But I think it, it goes on to a, a, an application that's beyond just the, the spiritual application. Just think of, 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 when you think of a person who would be a children of wrath, a child of wrath, what does that bring to mind? It, to me it brings to mind of a, a, a child who in their home situation or maybe they don't have a home situation. A child of wrath would be someone who all of their lives has heard condemnation and judgment from their parents, from their teachers, from those in authority over them. Children of wrath are those children who've heard all their lives, you are a mistake. You should have never been born. And we all know children of wrath who are judged, who are condemned, who are told that they are worthless, and that their life is meaningless. And guess what happens to children of wrath when they grow up? They become adults and teenagers of wrath, right? And they spew that same venom and they spew that same hatred out on others. Why? Because that's become part of their nature because they haven't experienced God's love. They haven't experienced God's grace and His nurturing. And so not only are, are dead people walking out gratifying their own selfish lusts, but they're also tearing down and destroying others. They're spreading and spewing their wrath in the relationships and in the people that they come across. Does that remind you of, of anyone? Does that remind you maybe even of your own struggles? Of how do I embrace being a child of God and, and, and growing and maturing in His love and in His grace so that, that my words don't become words of judgment and condemnation and wrath towards others? And then the most incredible thing in Scripture happens. Look in verse 4 and 5. Paul begins this chapter, you, you were dead. And you're walking in death, gratifying your own desires and your lusts. And you're a wrathful, but, but God, 
but God who is rich in mercy, but God who is rich in love. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. You were dead, but now you've been made alive in Jesus Christ. You have been resurrected with Christ is what Paul says. You've been raised up with Him. You have been seated with Him. Remember in chapter 1, eternity was about being in Christ Jesus. And now Paul says you are dead, but guess what? Now you've been raised up. You've been resurrected with Him. You've been resurrected in Him. When Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, guess what? So did we. We rose again eternally with Him. Because why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. And it's in Him that God has given life. God made us alive through Him. This is the second creation that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Well, how am I a new creation? Because you've been raised up with Christ. You've been resurrected with Christ. Jesus says it this way to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You're dead. And now you must be born again. Isn't this a beautiful picture? Again, as we talked about earlier, in the garden, God didn't tell us to get busy working before we were created, right? He created us first. And then He said, now go and cultivate and nurture. It's the same thing here. We can't earn and work our salvation. We can't earn and do good things now because why? Because we're dead. But now, through Christ Jesus, we're raised, we're resurrected, and now that we have been created and recreated in Christ Jesus, guess what? Now go and work. Now go and do all the great things and the good things that I've called you to do. Chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that the mystery of salvation is that God has gifted us with grace. This gift of salvation of grace is not of yourself. It's not to be earned. It's not something so that you can do, so that you can brag and boast. It is simply something that you receive. God is the one that acts on our behalf because we are dead. We are incapable of acting. Dead works do not produce life. But isn't it interesting that dead people think that they can do things. They can act in ways that produces life. When I was a, a kid, I was out hiking. We were with a, one of the, the young groups I was with. I think it was Wyoming Guide. Some of you may remember that, that group organization. We were mountain climbing, and the guy in front of me kicked a boulder down. And I was in a little valley, and, and he said, duck. So I ducked, and my head was right on the, the rock line. And that boulder just came, came down, and it clipped me right on the back of the head. And blood's everywhere. And that rock was, it was alive there for a few seconds, wasn't it? And it was working. And it sent me to the hospital to get some stitches. But you know what? When that rock quit rolling, it was just as dead as it could be, right? And it's the same way with us. Yeah, there's, there's momentum, there's energy and things that can happen from, from dead people, but life-giving works are not one of those things. And God says that this gift of grace is His work. It's not your work. 
The gift of salvation is not your work. It is His work. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace is the integration of God's love, of His mercy, of His forgiveness and cleansing and healing power. It's the integration of those things with His purposes into our life, available to anyone that would receive them. God's grace is free. But let us never make the mistake of saying that God's grace is cheap because God's grace cost God his son and the death of his son. God's grace is free, but it will transform and change your life. God's grace is free, but it must be received through faith. Now let's not make the error that says faith is a work. Because then we start boasting and bragging about how my faith is greater and better than your faith. And that's not the kind of faith that allows us to receive God's grace. God's grace is received through faith. Faith is that conduit through which God's grace flows into our lives. And it's not about how much faith you have. Because we know that the faith of a, if we just have the faith of a mustard seed, that we can do great and mighty things. And so... We receive God's grace through faith, no matter how weak, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant we may think that our grace, our faith is, God's grace always manages to flow and to move through our faith and into our lives. And once we receive God's grace, then we have the incredible news that we learn that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's Labor Day weekend, so let's compare the works. What are the works of the dead person that's walking? The works of this person, these people that Paul is talking about in verse 1. Dead people works are works that gratify and indulge the flesh, the pleasures of this world. They're wrathful in the way that they live. But listen to the description of how saved people walk and I'm going to draw on Luke chapter 4 which is Jesus's mission statement listen to what Jesus says in Luke 4 this is the way saved people walk well it says they preach good news to the poor they proclaim release to the captives they preach recovery of sight to the blind remember last week we talked about the importance of hearing hearing the gospel hearing the message of Christ proclaimed Jesus is picking up on that and saying People that do good works are those that preach and proclaim the good news of Christ. They preach release. They proclaim recovery of sight. But then Jesus continues in that that Isaiah passage, and he says, I've also come to set the oppressed free. How do do saved people walk? They walk in ways that release the oppressed and save the oppressed. They feed the hungry. They clothe those that don't have clothing. They, they help those that don't have shelter find shelter. The person in prison, they go and visit so that they know that somebody cares about them and loves them. And that they go and visit people in the hospital to nurture and encourage and be a part of that healing process. They welcome the stranger. They, they welcome the immigrant who doesn't know anybody. This is the good work of people who are saved by grace. 
And we are called in Christ Jesus to do these good things, to nurture, to cultivate, to love others. Saved people walking. They are created in Christ Jesus to do good things. Now, as we close out this chapter, there's, there's two more points I want to make. Look in, in verse 13. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's talking specifically about the Gentiles. The Gentiles who through Christ are not being excluded anymore, now they can become part of the chosen people of God. And for me, as we look at the mystery of salvation, we need to be reminded that the far off are brought near to God through Jesus Christ. How many of you used to be far off from God? How many of you know people that are far off from God? Don't lose hope. Know and understand that the message of salvation, the mystery of salvation is even for those who are far off and far away from God is that they can be brought near. And so let's be faithful to do good works. Let's be faithful to pray and to engage and to go after those who are far off from God. Look at verses 20. uh, Really the idea and the concept starts in verse 19. I'll begin halfway through verse 20. In Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is grown into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Do you see that in the mystery of salvation? Not only are you saved by grace, not only are you saved, even those that are far off that are brought near, You're saved for good works in Christ. But guess what? You're also fitted together. We are fitted together. Christ is the cornerstone and he fits us together. He builds us together as a church, as a people. So here's my question. Are are you being fit together with God's people? Are you being fit together in this church as a part of what God has called us to do? Or or maybe you're being fit together with another fellowship or another church or God is calling you to be fit together somewhere. But we need to understand that part of the mystery of salvation is that salvation doesn't happen alone. Good works don't happen alone. They happen as we are part of a community that's being fit together in Christ Jesus who is the cornerstone. We at First Baptist Church are a people who are being fit together in Christ Jesus as a people who love others, who love people, as a people who teach the Word, and as a people who live the journey of life and faith together. This is who we are. This is how God is working to fit us together as a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Are you being fit together? I believe this is part of the mystery of salvation that God is calling us all to as well. Let's pray.